Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as the best insight and analysis on all the big transfers and the issues that you are debating in football. Joining me as ever is our transfer guru, Duncan Castles. We will start today with, um, I think what some people would say, Duncan, as a bit of a mystery. Arsenal basically told the world in very unusual circumstances, the last thing a club ever does is tell the world what its transfer budget is before a window opens. But they did. They got a lot of flack from their fans as a result. Fans even wrote a letter demanding the Cronkies be removed from the club as a result of the lack of investment. And yet, they agree at a £72 million, £80 million Euros fee for Nicola Pepe from Lille over the weekend, beating, we believe, Napoli, potentially because Napoli have not withdrawn their interest yet. How on earth, Duncan, have they managed to pull this off? I think that Arsenal have been quite clever here with this um, £45 million pound. Um, as you say, well-publicised budget for the summer because um, they've got themselves in a position where we've gone through most of the summer with Arsenal fans despairing um, that they were not going to get the players they need uh, to turn themselves back into uh, Champions League contenders. Um, And suddenly they're Arsenal on the point of signing one of the top talents, uh, attacking talents in European football. Um, a player who could potentially transform their attack. Um, he was the second highest scorer in the French league um, after uh, Kylian Mbappe um, last season. Uh, was uh, scores goals and creates goals in, in large numbers. Is very quick, um, very good on the left foot, but also scores with his, his right foot. I think you've seen a lot of Arsenal fans getting on uh, to YouTube and elsewhere and watching repeat videos of of all the goals he um, scored for Lille last season. Um, And they've done this against uh, serious competition in that uh, this is a player that Liverpool have talked to the agent um, uh, to explore the possibility of doing a deal, who Manchester United have talked to Lille on more than one occasion and talked recently to Leo about um, what it would take to bring the player to the Premier League. Um, a player that Napoli, as you say, uh, agreed an €80 million Euro fee with Leo for, ahead of Arsenal, um, had conversations with the player's agent last week, were unable to agree uh, terms, uh, particularly on the agent's fee. Um, a player who Paris Saint-Germain um, are also uh, interested in and have been looking at as a potential replacement for Neymar. Also, have uh, been of interest to Bayern Munich. 
who have focused elsewhere on Manchester City's Leroy Zani, but you're talking about a prime talent, 24 years of age. Um, if he has anything like that season he had in France last year, he will be a significant force in the Premier League. And obviously there are question marks about adaptation, there are question marks about you, you uh, moving to a new country, fitting into a new team, a new system that you have with any player. But what they do seem to have here is a is a real talent and and a level of player you would not have expected them to secure, um, and and that changes the story of their transfer window. And it changes the optimism going into the season, assuming and and let's there is an assumption here that they complete that deal because what I hear from Leo is the agents' fees have been a problem, so Arsenal will have to satisfy that. I'm hearing numbers of over. Um, 10 million euros uh, being requested by the agent uh, to complete the deal. They'll have to satisfy Pepe's terms. And, of course, there's a possibility another club could come in and match that offer uh, while they're having these discussions because Leo are very clear they don't care where the player goes as long as they get the money um, they're asking price for the player. Uh, they will allow any club who meets that asking price to talk to the player and, and come to an agreement. Uh, I'm hearing from someone uh, close to the player that um, he does have an interest in Paris, and that would probably have been his preferred option. But as of yesterday, no offer had come in from Paris. But also um, that if it was to come down to straight choice between Italy or the Premier League, um, with everything else satisfied, then his preference would be to go to England. So Arsenal definitely in the in the box seat here. Um, one of the ways they've been able to do this is that they've structured the deal so that the 80 million euros is not paid all in one go. It'll be in an instalment base um, transaction, which um, allows them to spread the cost over several seasons and and therefore fits into that transfer budget if that transfer budget actually was 45 million or whether it was just a, a, a PR um, move to put that out there and get this, uh, this sense of relief uh, when they got deals through. People are asking me why Leo would accept um, 80 million in, in instalments. Well, you've got to look at this from the perspective of Leo as a football club. We're not talking um, Premier League budget here. Uh, for the 17-18 season, Leo's total revenue was 55 million uh, euros, which is roughly one-tenth of what Paris Saint-Germain had as revenue for the same season. So Leo um, are looking at taking more than their entire budget for a season on the sale of one player who they bought for just 8 million euros from Angers two years ago. Um, simultaneously, they've agreed to deal with Milan um, for Rafael Leon, a uh, player we mentioned in the podcast on Thursday of being of interest to a number of European teams. Um, that deal will be 35 million euros with a 20% uh, sell-on uh, clause, i.e. 20% of any profit Milan make from selling the player in future, and also gives them uh, the, the chance to secure a very talented young uh, Portuguese defender that Leo won, Thiago Jalo. Um, so Leon was, uh, was signed one year ago for, uh, for nothing, essentially, um, just the agent's fees and the signing on fee because he, he tore up his contract with Sporting by just cause. So you're looking at a profit of over 100 million euros 
in the space of a year for uh, one player and two years for another player on the sale of, of those two individuals in one week um, for a club that uh, is annual budget uh, the season before last was 55 million euros. Um, so I think that tells you why they can afford to do this transaction on an instalment basis because it's, uh, it's a lot of money any way you look at it and a lot of money guaranteed to them for the next uh, five seasons if it's spread across, uh, across the course of uh, Pepe's contract. It's quite an incredible story in terms of Lille and the talent that they recruit, Duncan, going back just to 2005 when they signed Aidan Hazard. Um, and sold him to Chelsea for 2007. A player, of course, who has since gone on to Real Madrid for £130 million this summer. Um, both Rafael Leao and um, Pepe were signed by the sporting director, Luis Campos, I believe, who seems to be a bit of a magician when it comes to t- turning over players and making a profit. Absolutely. Um, you know, very highly regarded for doing exactly this, which is to focus on these younger uh, age range players um, who haven't really established themselves, see that identify the future talent in them, put them on a platform um, like Leo. Previously it was Monaco. Uh, he was the man in charge of building that Monaco team that went to the, the Champions League semi-final and actually usurped Paris Saint-Germain um, as French champions on a much, much smaller budget and made a fortune in sales uh, using this same strategy. Um, you put the, give them the platform to play in a top league. Uh, the, the other major European clubs see how good the players are and they come in and, and offer um, immense fees to secure them. Kylian Mbappe, another great example there. Uh, Bernardo Silva, taken from Benfica Reserves, now arguably the best player in the Premier League last season after he moved to um, Manchester City in a deal that uh, was worth up to 75 million euros. And there's, a, there's an Arsenal connection there in that uh, you'll remember two summers ago um, that Arsenal were very close to buying Thomas Lamar from Monaco for 95 million euros uh, on deadline day as a replacement for Alexis Sanchez, who they'd agreed to deal to go Manchester City. Um, so that would have been the record transfer fee for Arsenal at the time. This is going to be a record transfer fee for Arsenal. Both of those players, identified by Luis Campos, developed at his clubs and sold. Uh, in Lamar's case, he eventually went to Atletico Madrid for great profit down the line. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's another irony in all of this, in that Campos um, is a, a friend of Jose Mourinho's, had worked for Mourinho at Real Madrid as a um, both a tactical scout and a talent scout. And uh, when that um, discussion at Manchester United happened about we need a director of football to improve our transfer market policy, um, to, to get better recruitment, to get better value out of uh, the, the large amount of resource we have to spend in the transfer market um, and, and, and change the structure of the club, the individual that Mourinho recommended to Ed Woodward as a director of football he'd be prepared and happy to work with was Luis Campos. Um, I understand Campos was very interested in that um, and would, would have liked uh, the opportunity to explore the possibility of working with Manchester United. Um, but Ed Woodward, in his wisdom, decided he didn't want to interview that man. Um, obviously, United briefed 
extensively that they would have a director of football in place for this transfer window. There is no director of football in place. The transfers are still controlled by ultimately by Ed Woodward. Um, and the, I think the contrast there is obvious and, and, and questions would be asked about why um, United turned down that opportunity to speak to an individual who's broadly regarded as one of the best in the business at, at what, he's, what he does. And why, um, if they turned down that opportunity, they haven't got who they thought would be a better alternative in place for what everyone sees as a pivotal transfer window for Manchester United. And one that's um, clearly not um, guaranteed to have a, uh, an ideal resolution as, as matters stand at present. I did hear a rumour there wasn't actually enough room in the recruitment office for someone else and they just couldn't fit Lewis Campos in with all those other people already there. Um, <laughs> that may, whether that's true, I don't know. One question though, Duncan, given Campos's quite remarkable career at Monaco and Lille, why is he still at Lille? Why hasn't he been snapped up by Real Madrid or Barcelona? Or even Man not Manchester City? I mean, it just seems weird that a guy who's obviously spotting, the, you know, and not just the talent to start with, but the potential for that talent to grow, which, um, you know, as we talked about with Bernie Mandic, that's sometimes, you know, that's the key. It's not actually spotting the talent, spot, spotting a player who you know or you have an instinct is going to become a better player. What's, is Luis waiting for the right offer? Well, I think he's well paid. Understand he's well paid at Lille because he's a, he's central to their project. So they they saw what he did at Monaco. Um, Lille are working, as I say, in a similar way to Monaco. So it's invest in those young talents, put them on a stage, sell them. If that's your strategy, then the most important player, or most important player is a good way to put it, is is the guy who's signing the players. So they they um, have invested a lot in having him there. There, there's definitely been interest from elsewhere. Um, Franco Baldini recommended him as uh, director of football for Roma when they were restructuring this summer. Um, I believe that, uh, that Campus had conversations with Roma about taking on that job, but decided that it wasn't, um, it wasn't a good club to work at because the club um, has a very difficult structure, difficult financial position, issues with the ownership, um, the squad's in a bad way. It's the kind of project you could go into and not um, be given a proper remit or the tools to do your job properly and damage your reputation. Um, I also understand he had conversations with Barcelona this summer. Um, there are individuals at Barcelona he's worked with who uh, had a discussion with him about whether he would be interested in coming into recruitment project there. But they're, um, I think, at the top tier of Barcelona um, a, diff a different decision was taken and they, ha they have made quite big changes to their um, sporting technical director set up with individuals resigning this summer. Um, I, I would imagine at some point down the line one of the big clubs will come in and, uh, and manage to convince him to come and work for them. Um, he's obviously uh, a talent um, and, a and a valuable asset that um, that it would be interesting to see working, for example, in the Premier League um, and see what he could do, obviously in a different environment because you, you're recruiting then, if you're at a top club like Manchester United, you're 
you're recruiting players who need to um, be at the top of their game immediately and perform immediately. And when you bring younger players in, you'd have to look at a different category of younger player in the sense that um, their opportunity to develop would require them to have game time for Manchester United. And if they're going to have game time for Manchester United, they have to be at a level where they're ready to play. Um, whereas you can take a, a less finished talent to a club like Lille and put them on the stage and, and not have the same level of pressure on them. But the same principles essentially apply. And also the work in terms of organising a club, uh, the other elements of a football director, the link between the manager and the players, something that Mourinho talked about quite pointedly when he left Manchester United was that he felt there was a lack of um, link between uh, the, the board and him as a manager and another voice within working with the players that wasn't the manager who could talk to players and say, this is what you need to do from the club's perspective in terms of behaviour or in terms of uh, focusing on a particular area of your game to develop without it always being the manager coming down on them and saying, do this, do that, do that. If you've got two voices, Mourinho's argument is, it helps. And, and I don't think that's a, um, a partic- an argument that's particularly restricted to Mourinho. I think you'll, you'll hear coaches from other top clubs um, who, who will argue the same, that in, in the modern game it is very important to have a technical director who, um, who takes that role on, and, and most of the top clubs have that now. And coming back to Arsenal, um, they have put that structure in place uh, and they're using that structure to do what they've done in the window at the moment. Um, it was Raul Sanyehi, the head of football operations, who, um, who negotiated with, Ar- with uh, Lille and put that uh, transaction in place. Um, he's also brought Danny Sabalas from Real Madrid, um, which potentially could be a very good signing for Arsenal in terms of you're, you're looking at a, a seriously talented young player there, albeit Arsenal don't have an option to buy. But given their circumstances, um, an important um, addition. Um, and interesting, I think, to see what happens with Kieran Tierney. I wonder what your feeling, Ian, would be in terms of the impact that being putting a deal in place for €80 million Euros for a striker will have on their efforts to persuade Celtic um, to sell Tierney at a price that's acceptable to Arsenal. I suspect it'll have the negative effect, to be honest, Duncan, because <laughs> the way that Celtic are looking at it is Arsenal already trying to get Tierney on the cheap, as far as they're concerned, and by paying installments. So they'll look at the Pepe deal and say, well, were you just playing us along? You're pleading poverty, or we can only afford this, we can only afford to pay this amount this year, this amount the next. And, you know, you've got a board there, and an owner as well, who know the value of a pound. So I think it will have the reverse effect in terms of persuading um, Celtic to sell. However, you have to say if you were Kieran Tierney and you were looking at playing on the same side as Nicola Pepe, (laughs) I think you as a player would be more excited. The idea of Pepe is going to play off the left wing and Lacazette or Aubameyang through the middle and you're an attacking uh, left back getting to link up with a player of that calibre. Then I think, you know, that may turn his head a little more in direction of North London that currently has been. I think Pepe can play left wing uh, and he's left footed, but his, his preference is to play off the right. He off the actually, right, comes inside, yeah. yeah. He, can actually, he can actually play anywhere across. If you if you play a 4-2-3-1, he, 
he'll play anywhere across that attacking floor. You can play him as a central striker, you can play him as a 10. Um, but the, the real success he had for Lille last season was coming off the, off, uh, the right wing at pace and, and being able to play centrally, can dribble in tight spaces. A, a proper range of talents for an attacker. Well, put it this way, from being a rather depressing and you know pessimistic place uh, that Arsenal was 10 days ago, the signing of Chabalos and potentially Pepe, because we've got to um, you know, accentuate the fact this deal is not signed as yet. The player returns to Lille uh, today, this morning, to talk to the board, who, as Duncan's already said, uh, have made it clear they don't care which club he goes to as long as they get that 80 million euros. So, um, yeah, Pepe will make his decision. We believe that Arsenal have made a better offer of personal terms. Um, so, as you said, Arsenal suddenly have become a bit of a buzzy club from being a depressed, a depressed one with uh, Chabalos and possibly Pepe as well. So, yeah, um, you know, I said Tierney's may well be more tempted now to make the move to, to North London. From one set of disgruntled fans who've, I think, suddenly got a little smile on their face, Duncan, to another, and that is the fans of Manchester United who have long-standing issues with uh, the Glazers' Um, control of the club and indeed Edward Ward's stewardship as well and you've received a very interesting letter um, that you're going to tell us about is that correct? Yeah it's the next stage in the in the Glazers Out campaign which um, ended up trending worldwide earlier in the summer and um, is being stepped up by by that group of, of fans who are protesting against the uh, the Glazers' stewardship and ownership and, and running of the club. I'll just read a bit from the letter for you. Um, starts off saying, 14 years is a long time in football. In 2005, when you bought this club, we were the preeminent force in English football. We regularly and successfully challenged for titles. We competed each season in the Champions League. We boasted some of the most talented players in the world. We were the pride of England, successful off the pitch because we were successful on it. It goes on, today we are a club in decline. We used to challenge for titles. Now we must choose which rival we would rather see win the league. Where Champions League football was a given, we now fail to even qualify. Where we attracted the most exciting players, we now watch every transfer window unfold in horror as the speed and ambition of our rivals to attract the best is matched only by the dithering frugality of your executive vice chairman, Ed Woodward a man who recently received a significant pay rise. Manchester United don't have a divine right to be successful, and our fans are all here for the love of the club, not the glory. But as on-pitch performances decline as a result of your stranglehold, we won't stay silent. So that's the threat. And then they go on to pose um, five questions to the Glazers, and to the board of Manchester United that they want to see answered. Those questions are... Um, why uh, what they claim to be just £44 million of the original debt that uh, the Glazers put onto the club in order to, to take it off the stock market and take control um, and ownership of the club. Why uh, has just £44 million of that original debt uh, been paid off? Why um, has Ed Woodward received a near 60% pay rise? Uh, in the last financial year to £4.152 million uh, of salary. 
Um, they say that since 2005, £750 million has been spent on servicing debt. What are your plans to reduce those fees? Um, how much of the over £400 million that's been raised through shares, uh, sales of shares on the US stock market, how much of that £400 million has been invested into the club, if anything at all? And has there been any progress in the search for a director of football? I mean, these are very poignant questions. And, you know, if, and, it, you know, we know it's unlikely, Ed Woodward or a member of the Glazers family would like to come on and uh, give us some of their uh, perspective and their side of this, then we'd happily welcome that. But as they live like recluses and you never see or hear them, then that's not going to be happening anytime soon. So in which case, I'm going to play devil's advocate, um, Duncan, and say, well, the Glazers will claim that the club is very profitable. Its market capitalisation is, if not at its height, but certainly almost at the height that it's been for the last four to five years. <clears throat> There's no instability financially at the club. So why is it that we are doing wrong, but that we should even bother to uh, look over this letter from Glazers out? Clearly, they have an agenda against us as a family and against the uh, EVC. Well, I, th I think the, the, the point would be if they, if they were to come back with an answer like that, the response would be, we don't care about whether the club is profitable. Um, from your perspective, uh, the, the, the argument here is the club makes lots of money off its own back, and it, and it always had made, made lots of money. Uh, that money should be invested in the football team. And, and the comparison is, as they say, 14 years ago, uh, the club was a preeminent force in English football. Uh, now it's slipped to a level where it's uh, struggling to qualify for the Champions League, even qualify for the Champions League on a regular basis. Obviously not won the title since um, Edward Woodward was put in as executive vice chairman. Um, that isn't good enough, and I think there's very little argument. I, I don't see how the Glazers can say that the performances on the field are um, uh, sufficient to what they should be, given that the club has either the top revenue in world football or the second highest revenue in world football most years, depending on where the, the value of sterling is and the better on whether they, they've been in the Champions League the previous season, um, to have failed to deliver more silverware and not, and not be um, champions of England at least once in, in those six years. So you can understand um, the basis of the argument. I think more important, more interesting because uh, I think you're right, uh, the Glazers certainly avoided responding to this publicly so far. Um, so I think what you'll see is more pressure uh, being exerted by the fans. And uh, then you, you'll start to ask, when does the, when does the tipping point come? Um, when do the Glazers have to respond? When do they have to, do they have to um, deal with sponsors? discontent about uh, their, their fans uh, complaining about the club? Um, do you get protests within the stadium? Um, do you get protests during games that affect performances on the field? I think, I think it's, it, it, it's where it goes from here is uh, the more interesting side. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think not regardless, but let's just put the <clears throat> issue of um, the interest on the loans, etc., and the New York Stock Exchange money that was raised to one side. As you said, 
as a club, they still have one of the biggest turnovers in world sport. They do make money, they always have. This is obviously a case of football mismanagement, not financial mismanagement as such. You could say there are concerns about the finances because of the debt, etc. But what we know from takeovers of football clubs is um, that any debt which the club has, which is you know, which is it, they own that debt, transfers immediately to the new owners. So the club itself wouldn't actually, although the debt is leveraged on them as a company the debt itself wouldn't suddenly be called in because the Glazers are sold. <clears throat> so therefore, the idea that that would suddenly disappear should the Glazers actually go out, get out, uh, isn't necessarily one that stands up. So it's about football mismanagement in the last five, six years. Uh, and, you know, as you said before and said many times, the um, either refusal or uh, simply negligence of not appointing a director of football who has a consistent transfer strategy, one which suits the team, et cetera, et cetera. The, you know, multiple changes of coaches as well in that time since Sir Alex Ferguson retired, as well as failure to address uh, ageing or maybe players who weren't quite up to playing for Manchester United uh, being moved out and being replaced with quality. I think that's, as you said, that's when the fans will become very angry and will make their voices heard at Old Trafford and away matches as well. Because Manchester United fans are very passionate about their club and want to see them succeed, and um, and not be uh, what looks like becoming something of a kind of mediocre, you know, maybe we'll get a Champions, League, maybe we'll not club, which just seems would which only six years ago would have been almost unimaginable. I think, from my personal point of view, there, there, there's two there's two elements to this. Um, the debt could be cleared uh, if a, a new owner came in. If the Glazers were to sell um, to a sufficiently uh, wealthy buyer, that buyer could um, turn, uh, clear out the debt from the club and, uh, and also invest new capital uh, in Manchester United. Um, what is unarguable is that uh, over a billion pounds have, has been taken out of the resources that Manchester United generates itself to service debt pay um, directors' fees, etc. That money hasn't gone on the football side of operations. Um, if it had done, Manchester United should be a far stronger force on the football field. On top of that, absolutely the point you raised, that the, the, the money that has been spent has been uh, spent, has not been spent well. So there has been football mismanagement. So you can, you can control both sides of that equation. The Glazers are not putting money into the club um, and they're actively taking money out of the club, which most other owners, Premier League clubs, are not doing, certainly not in scale, the Glazers have. But they've also appointed um, an uh, executive tier at the club who've done a poor job of managing with the still substantial resources they have um, what the, the product on the football field and everything that goes around the football field. So there, there are reasons to complain about that. Whether you're, um, whether you're a fan um, and you have the emotional uh, investment in, and, and the reason to complain about what's happening with Manchester United or whether you're just an impartial observer comparing Manchester United's uh, management to that of other football clubs. And, you know, the contrast with, for example, Manchester City, 
where a huge amount of money has gone into the club from an external source, but also that money has been very efficiently managed, very efficiently applied to build one of the top teams in Europe. It's huge. Um, and there's no getting away from that. And that's probably part of the reason why um, the Glazers and Ed Woodward uh, don't want to uh, sit down and have an on-record conversation about their uh, stewardship of the club because it would be a it would be a hard defence for them to put. Well, as you all know, we do like to represent the views of the fans on the Transfer Window podcast. And uh, when you guys get upset with the way your club's been running, you'll find that we're happy to discuss that and try and give you some answers and certainly some analysis as well as Duncan just has very fluently with Manchester United. It'll be very interesting to see what happens at the start of the season when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer begins his first full campaign as manager. And uh, with only a week on Thursday until the window closes, still waiting for that big signing to come into Manchester United. So again, that will have, I'm sure, a big effect on the mood of the fans as they begin the campaign on uh, I think it's Sunday, August the 11th against Chelsea. Well, no such problems this summer for Manchester City. They recruited Rodri at a club record deal. Um, they have improved their squad and won the, won the domestic treble last season. But Duncan, an interesting situation which has been ongoing, a story you broke some weeks ago on the transfer window that Leroy Zani was unhappy at Manchester City and that Bayern Munich we're very interested in recruiting him. It's one that hasn't really moved on. I think what's been interesting over the weekend uh, is that um, Kovac, the coach of Bayern Munich, has spoken openly about his confidence that Bayern Munich will be able to sign Zani this summer. Uh, while Manchester City have been briefing the media in this country that they've had no offers. Now, before I ask for your view, Duncan, I'm just going to impart a little bit of information that I've gleaned over the last day or so on this. And that is that the actual truth is that Manchester City have received an offer from Bayern Munich, but it's around 25% short of their valuation. Um, I'm also told that uh, they have had a conversation with Real Sociedad about the young Spanish international winger Mikel Oyazabal. Um, very good player, uh, 22 years old, 13 goals, uh, not bad return from at least 37 La Liga appearances last season playing off the left wing, um, definitely got a lot of promise, but not quite the player Zani is now. Is there something going on here in terms of a kind of PR stroke public opinion war, Duncan, between Bayern and City? Because they seem to be saying or briefing a lot, but nothing's actually happening. I think part of the problem here is that Bayern Munich haven't convinced Leroy Zani to join them. Um, there's a lot of elements to this, but when I reported in May that, uh, that Manchester City were open to selling Sani this summer, it was because they had failed to convince the player to sign a new contract. Um, they knew he had two years of contract left. They knew if, he, if they held him for one more year, his transfer value would drop considerably. And if they held him for two years at that level, he could, they could risk losing him for nothing. They knew he was unhappy with his situation. Um, only started 21 Premier League games last season, despite his huge effectiveness for the team. They knew there was an issue between him and Pep Guardiola. Uh, so they, they were in a difficult situation. 
in that um, they couldn't guarantee the player staying at the club. And, and an unusual situation for Manchester City because they do not allow players to go, particularly players of his age, um, who are clearly important to their team. They do not allow those players to go voluntarily. They hold them, put them on new contracts, retain them uh, for as long as they're performing for the team. They sell when it suits them to sell. This is a different scenario. And, it, and, it, and it's this, this unusual elements in there, I think particularly caused by this tension between Guardiola and Zani that have forced them into circumstances where they permitted Bayern Munich to speak to Zani's representatives and to speak to Zani. They were prepared to allow him to um, assess whether he wanted to go there and Bayern to talk and see if they could do a financial deal with Zani uh, that would meet his terms, give him the platform uh, as a as, a, as the superstar of the team, which is something he wants to be, uh, to play at Bayern. So you, you see people complaining of Bayern are tapping up the player, have tapped up the player. Bayern are talking about a player who's Manchester City's player and they're being disrespectful to the club. The actual background to all of this is Manchester City have permitted Bayern to discuss a transfer. So this is not a, this is not a forced um, Real Madrid-style hijack transfer. Um, there are some unusual, other unusual elements around it in that people close to Zani are not speaking and they're not briefing. Um, you're not hearing about other clubs. Uh, there, there clearly will be other clubs in Europe who are interested in this player because of his age and because of his ability and, and a kind of unique skill set he has. Um, he's very vertical, he's very quick. He scores goals, he creates goals. And, and I, I think that's probably the biggest issue for Manchester City if they lose him. I don't think they, they can replace him like for like. I think he is a, a key that allows them to break um, difficult defences. And if they lose that key, they will not get as many points next season as they've done in the last two seasons in the Premier League because they won't have the same range of answers for certain match situations. Oyasabal is good, very good. But he's not Leroy Zani. He doesn't attack in the same way. He's quick. He's not as quick. And he's not as direct. Um, so you're looking at if that does become the answer, if Zani decides he wants to move to Bayern Munich. Um, and I'm told uh, that there is a reluctance there. And that's one of the reasons this, this deal hasn't happened yet. Uh, if he decides to go, they'll need to replace. If they replace with a Yasobal, they will have to change uh, to a certain extent the way they play. Um, and, and that's an issue here. It's obviously going to come to a head soon because Manchester City only have a few days left in which to sell and replace. Um, otherwise, the player stays. Um, and then you, you have the discussion of whether you can convince the player to sign that, that long-term contract that the club would like him to sign. Um, Guardiola has talked about this publicly and, and as we've mentioned before, he's very open-ended. He says he wants to retain the player, he values the player, but he's also said that he doesn't want players at the club who don't want to be at the club. And uh, just looking at one of the comments um, he made about Zani last week, he said, I think he has an incredible gap to be better in terms of being connected in the game. So even at a stage where you'd expect a manager in public to be saying everything possible to try and convince a top player to stay, Guardiola's putting out reasons why 
uh, Sani's not where he wants him to be as a footballer. And, and I think this is kind of typical in, in Guardiola's career. Um, he, he doesn't deal particularly well with resistance from players. Um, there's a reason why he prefers to have younger, more malleable individuals. And he wants to control them. Um, he is the, he's the tactical genius. He's the guy who devises the, the schemes to beat opponents. He regularly talks about how he can't do it without having the best players available to him. But he expects those best players to follow the strategies he lays out for them um, and to focus on preparing themselves uh, and, uh, and having the right attitude um, all around the football club um, while they're preparing themselves for games and when they're about to play games. And when he comes up against someone like Zani, who is resistant, you get this kind of tension. I mean, if I'm looking at from Zani's point of view, Duncan, uh, I would be saying, OK, I finished last season basically as a substitute because Bernardo Silva's form was outstanding and at this moment in time, he's undroppable. Ryan Sterling, ditto, player of the year uh, in England last season. And then you've got David Silva playing as a 10 and Aguero up front or um, Gabriel Jesus. And I'm thinking, OK, I want to stay at a club where I'm going to be effectively starting the season as a sub and and trying to convince a manager who clearly doesn't have 100% faith in me anyway. Or do I go to a club like Bayern Munich? I'm a German at national already. If they want me to be the new superstar, then I will be the Bernardo Silva, so Ryan Sterling of Bayern Munich. Um, it's an odd one. And, and again, if I look at it from Guardiola's point of view, I ask myself, right, Yes, he's, he's brilliant and he has the potential to get even better, but he's difficult. I don't like difficult. The club are saying to me, look, if we can sell him, then we can get you, you know, the next Leroy Zani, maybe, maybe not, in Oyarzabal. Spanish, 22, as you said, young, malleable, will follow Guardiola's methods to wherever he wants to take them to. If you're sort of, you know, as much as, Sani is brilliant. If you're Pep, you might think, you know what? Sometimes you've got to take a step back to go a step forward. Yeah, and removing a, a trouble point from the dressing room um, probably suits Guardiola. Um, as I say, the interesting thing for me is who that changes Manchester City as a team if they lose Sani. Um, because it's obvious to me that he was the solution for them in, in situations in certain games. And you, and you saw it last season. Zani being left out of the team. Um, they're struggling to score a goal in a match they needed to win. Zani comes off the bench, breaks the game, and gets them two points extra that they wouldn't have had. And that happened on more than one occasion. Um, that's, that's the decision that Guardiola and the club have to take. Um, I think it's interesting that I think if Guardiola wasn't at the club, it would be an easy one for the club to do. Um, they would pay the money Zani wants and assure him uh, that he would be a starter, not uh, you know, uh, uh, not he's not quite a second choice, but he's in and out of the team. You know, Twenty-one Premier League starts says it all, despite scoring ten goals and producing uh, eleven Premier League assists across the, the course of the season. A player of his quality can rightly expect to be a starter in, in a top-level Champions League 
team because he's proven he has the, the ability to do that. Um, whether he sees Bayern Munich as the right club for him to go to is obviously something that's in doubt um, because this has gone on for so long and permission was given so early in the window that uh, a deal should have been done with the player by now. Um, normally in these circumstances, with all the background to it, with City offering permission to speak, with City being prepared to sell at a certain price, and being worried about his contract down the line, a club like Bayern Munich or another suitor does the deal with the player, says, well, what terms do you need? What conditions do you need to play? This is how it's going to be at the new club. Right, we now negotiate transfer fee with uh, your current employer. Um, as far as I understand, that deal with Zani is not in place with Bayern Munich as yet, which suggests they've got a double problem here, which is still have to convince them and have to agree um, a fee with Manchester City, which will be substantial. Um, I'm told that Manchester City's asking price is at least 100 million euros for the player. And Bayern have been briefing that their budget for the position is 80 million euros. So there's a gap there. Well, I think the question with Leroy Zani now is, Duncan, is he more trouble than he's worth or is he worth the trouble? Uh, time will tell and it will tell us very quickly with only around 12 days until the transfer window closes in England on August the 8th. Speaking of trouble, it's Monday, so it's heroes and villain time. Since it's trouble, I'm going to ask Duncan to give us his villain first, even though the hero may also be a little bit feisty. <laughs> uh, well, I think the villain is is very easy this week. It's um, the ownership and management of Liverpool Football Club who have uh, taken it upon themselves to try and trademark the word Liverpool um, so that they can maximise their profit on the sale of uh, Liverpool uh, memorabilia. And um, uh, understandably, um, the people of Liverpool, a large number of them, are unimpressed by the idea that a business uh, can claim trademark over the name of a city. And even a, a big core of the, the Liverpool um, supporters have publicly complained about this move. So I, I don't think you get uh, much of an easier villain than uh, that piece of... Uh, kind of corporate uh, blackmail that is going on in Liverpool's part and they're trying to trademark uh, the name of the city to which they belong. No American sports group is bigger than the city of Liverpool. That's the uh, message heading FSG's way at HQ in Boston. I'm going to go for a very old friend of the Transfer Window podcast as my hero, Diego Costa. What a performance in the Madrid derby all be played on a different continent last weekend. If you missed it, look it up. 7-3 Atletico won. Diego Costa completed a hat-trick within the first half. Completed a brace of four after 51 minutes. And then, in classic Diego style, got sent off for fighting with Danny Carvajal 10 minutes later. Now, we talked about Zlatan's perfect hat-trick. That has to be Diego's perfect quadruple sensational Diego Costa we salute you and yes it is true he did hear that there was a burger van right outside the dressing room and uh, they were doing good business after the hour so maybe that explains the red card and not the fighting with Danny Carvajal now if you enjoyed this uh, podcast which I'm sure you did please give us something back you know what to do go to iTunes give us a five star rating 
let's enlarge this community even greater than it is already. If you want to continue to debate with us, then please do so at our Twitter handle, which is at Transfer Podcast. Duncan is at Duncan Castles and I'm at Garbo SJ. And we look forward to continuing the debate with you uh, as we go forward to, of course, your questions answered in Wednesday's podcast. So please, I'll give you a little plug for that. Please tweet us or tweet Transfer Podcast handle with your questions that you would like us to address uh, on Wednesday's show. And as our new feature, any suggestions you have for the donkey also greatly, greatly received. That's all for this particular Transfer Window podcast. We will see you through that window on Wednesday for now. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 